there, Pete. Hi, Andy. This is our member bonus episode for December 2023, ending the year with a fun conversation about the Lost Boys. But why are we uh, here before the conversation about the Lost Boys right now? Look, uh, we don't do this uh, very often, but we record these member bonus episodes. They're, you know, it's on the tin. They're for members. They go out to, to the members who support this show, uh, and they go out in their very own personal podcast feed, and they get to hear these episodes. And once a year, we like to throw one out. as it, it, This is the holiday spirit. Twice a year, it's the holiday spirit. This time, it's the holidays of December. Whatever your holiday is, it's a December gift. The other time... It's whatever holiday is in that month when we do it. Maybe it's the 4th of July. Maybe it's Arbor Day. I don't know. But we do like to throw these bonus episodes out to everybody to hear what you're missing, to hear what you're missing if you were to become a member of the next reel. We love doing uh, the podcast, but we do have a membership and we just want to make sure that uh, all of you out there, surely you've heard us talking about the membership in the past and some other episodes or in our ads about it. But we want to give you a taste as to what members actually get. Um, you know, members get uh, these shows that don't have any of the ads. There's a pre-show and a post-show chat uh, quite oftentimes. All of the episodes they get early, they get extra channels over in our Discord community, plus these member bonus episodes each month. In the past, they're, they've gotten flick chart re-ranking episodes. We would do these retake episodes after each series, talking about the series. So much stuff that the members get. So much stuff. We just really encourage you to go check it out. If you've been on the fence, why not now? Why not head over to thenextreel.com slash membership? You should check that out. And if you do that, if you sign up, if you join, you can become a member. You can get all the extra stuff, the early shows, and uh, you can jump into the live stream and listen along right there in Discord uh, as we record and chat right along with us and other fantastic members as we record the shows. It's really fun. In fact, those conversations when they're chatting along with us as we record, that generally is the crux of our post-show chit-chat. We kind of go through the conversation and answer questions that people brought up and stuff like that. It's a lot of fun. It's a great way to kind of continue the conversation with everybody. And you know what else uh, members get? It's not just for The Next Reel, but you get early access to all the other shows in The Next Reel family of podcasts in your members-only feed, which includes the film board, movies we like, Sitting in the Dark, all of the past shows as well. And some of those shows also had member bonus episodes, like the film board was doing uh, member bonus episodes for a while. So there's lots of extra content, a lot of fun uh, additional things that you get when you become a member. So absolutely, go to thenextreel.com slash membership, check it out, think about it, $5 a month or $55 a year. It's a great way to support the show. It's just a, a nice way to kind of help us out. Well, and uh, you might have heard, if you are in the podcast universe at all, advertising is rough for podcasts right about now. But you know what isn't? Member support. It it makes everything smooth for us financially. It, it, member support helps really to run the operation without bowing to the whims of the huge ad market. And so if you're tired of hearing all those ads, what better way to show your support than become a member? Thanks, everybody. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The Lost Boys is over. Don't ever invite a vampire into your house, you silly boy. It renders you powerless. 
Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. boys andy uh fun one to return to this is a uh the next this uh, our members voted on this episode as a bonus episode to throw into our current series that we're doing the 1988 academy awards best visual effects nominees which of course has only two nominees this is one of those categories it uh had inner space which won and predator were the two nominees uh, members had already voted to include in this series The Princess Bride and Robocop as two additional movies to talk about. And, of course, now we have this member bonus episode, The Lost Boys. All great films from 1987, all sorts of effects. Here we are talking about The Lost Boys. And uh, sticking with the general crux of this series, let's start talking about visual effects with this one. Okay, let's let's do that. It's all about the teeth, right? Well, they're vampires. This is an interesting vampire movie because in the scope of vampires, what are things you expect to see in vampire movies? Yeah. So it's the teeth and the blood. And in this movie, we also get some changing faces. And that that takes me to, you know, how this movie served to inspire a lot of the vampires that come after it, particularly like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right, where you get these vampires where their their foreheads and noses change in addition to their teeth. And I think that is that makes this movie kind of interesting to look at as inspiration for films to follow. And frankly, it looks really good. The thing that I was interested about in about this movie is that there are so many shots that are allusions to flying, but you never really see the vampires fly. And I think that's a really interesting choice. They're always it's always flight POV. That's not an effect. That's a crane camera. The closest I think we get is when it's right after the frog boys stab Marco in the cave Mm -hmm. and David like wakes up and it's it's kind of like he's kind of chasing them briefly through the before they get to the tunnels. It almost is like he kind of comes down flying at them. Kind of. But it also could just look like he's falling on them or he's jumping. Like it's it's very unclear if he's actually flying. But I mean, that's a really interesting point because in the scope of vampires and special effects the transformation like are they bats or are they just flying teenagers like yeah. what are these people who are screaming in terror actually seeing here and are they bats or are they flying teenagers oh my god why didn't one of the adults yell that in this movie the security guard at the beginning oh my god the flying teenagers <laughs> You never know. You never know. You got to be careful. 
<clears throat> but I mean, okay. that's in, yes. in the scope of a lower budget uh, vampire project, you know, that's a great way. And it kind of goes to the POV killer movies going back to Halloween, Black Christmas, kind of all those sorts of movies where you've got a killer and they didn't really have a budget to <laughs> kind of show what it is that is, is that is looking out and you know also for the scares you don't you want to save that reveal for later and this is kind of one of those things so they're like you know what we'll just do it all with camera and povs and and make it work and you know i think it works and in the scope of the way that they're allowing the special effects especially the like the makeup effects the reveals of the characters for later in the film i think that works like we're not getting a sense of what these uh teenagers look like as vampires until later, which lets them, when we are initially spending time with them, it feels very much just like all the sexy 80s teenagers hanging out together. And they're very sexy teenagers. Definitely the era. And as you said, this inspired the the makeup stylings in vampires with uh, you know, later projects. But it also kind of gave a lot to the sexy vampire trope that kind of really was on the rise in this era. Well, and here's the other thing. <laughs> that that when I first saw the, it's been a long time since I watched this movie. What I didn't know, it was actually until uh, I think Chrissy uh, and Nathan did it on uh, Most Excellent 80s podcast talking about this movie. And I had not remembered the homoerotic undertones or dare I even say overtones. <laughs> In this movie, when I saw it as a kid. <laughs> what, Joel Schumacher film? What are you talking about? <laughs> I know, right? I know, I should have known. And yet it came out at a time where I wasn't really thinking about that. And I just thought van- vampires were cool. And now it is, oh my God, it's the queer anthem movie of the, f- for the end of time. This, like, we have the good and the bad. We have... D- Kiefer Sutherland's character is like this coded gay predator, right? Like, we have all these other characters who are coming into their own, and we have the Corys, Haim and Feldman, and uh, my goodness, that jacket he's wearing when he's first going around Santa Carla, that's that's like, out there flamboyance is so, so amazing, and... Well, even earrings on guys at this time was, was, you know, one of those things that was a... right. And we have, like, what What are we doing with this family of Max and the boys who don't look anything like one another and are all roughly the same age and they're hanging around eating people? And there are no maternal figures on their side of the thing at all. We have Jamie Gertz, who is clearly just a hanger-on. Like, she is, she might have been uh, an accidental turn, if you know what I mean. Like, what is she, what is she the beard for? You have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, I think that Joel Schumacher ended up making a movie that I didn't understand when I first saw it. And I didn't know he was openly gay. I didn't get it. And now I do. And the movie is fantastic. It's just <laughs> fantastic. That's what I have to say about that. Well, and, and here's the thing, like, it's coded enough where I, I think plenty of people can still watch this and not pick up on any of that and not feel like, oh, this isn't for me. Like, the, even just like, when I was a teenager, I wasn't connecting to any of that sort of stuff. But I still really enjoy this film. I enjoyed it at the time. I enjoyed these characters. I connected with Corey Haim, absolutely, because I felt like, you know, the same comic book nerdy sort of kid as him. And like there there is so much here that is kind of for everybody and that's i think 
what Joel Schumacher kind of expertly did here without people catching on is he allowed it to kind of be accessible to everybody and it still is. And I think that's kind of a marvel with this film because it just feels like teenage teenagedom, you know, and, and I, yes. I, I find it to be uh, just really well crafted by him and, and kind of fun, just still crazy fun to watch. Super fun. And yet, if you watch it and you have any uh, concerns about your own identity or alignment, then you watch this movie and this whole theme of being an outcast or lost or whatever and, and trying to find yourself is uh, like it, it ends up being an easy movie to help the marginalized feel stronger and emotionally sort of capable. Right. And, and I think it, I think in that regard, it, it really works and it's fun and it's fun. And it, it really celebrates found families, right? There's a whole culture in here about, Hey, I know they're vampires. Like I get that, but also these people are living together outside the norm. This is an, this is an alt family that they've created. And, you know, I know they jump around on train tracks and eat people, but it kind of works for them. It feels <laughs> feels pretty good. Family's family. Family's family's family. family. That's right. Uh, now there was a. Uh, I think there's a lot to that aspect of it, and also I think there's an interesting aspect to the idea of uh, just. I mean, it's in the title, "The Lost Boys." It came from Peter Pan, and uh, like that was kind of the inspiration for the the writers, uh, Janice Fisher and, and James Jeremias, when they came up with the script was. Um, you know, the idea after reading Anne Rice's interview with the vampire and there was this, you know, 200 year old vampire trapped in the body of a 12 year old girl. Uh, they said, what if Peter Pan came out at night, never grew up and could fly because he was a vampire. And kind of like that kind of spun this whole idea of what the lost boys were and this, this, this nature. And I think one of the critics, uh, took that and kind of captured the idea as well. This was Elaine Showalter who said the film brilliantly portrays vampirism as a metaphor for the kind of mythic male bonding that resists growing up commitment, especially marriage. Like that's, I think why it works because it's, it's coded in so many interesting ways, but also you can just see it as like the whole idea of the lost boys and this idea of, I want to latch on to that perpetual youth as long as I can and not have to worry about growing up and just enjoy the party, the lifelong party as long as possible. And I think that's that's what's so interesting about it is because it's talking to all of these points. And the fact that, that mom, I mean, come on, she's had real trouble with men and her own dad says you're the only person for whom a divorce doesn't substantially improve your situation i love that line because here <laughs> she is single mom two boys like the only thing left is to try you know hooking up with a with a woman as as her partner and that would probably go great that's the identity of the movie like of course she's gonna get together and realize she's been gay all along i think it's just <laughs> fantastic I think it's just fantastic. As a, as a note on that, they come from Phoenix, right? Like they've moved from <laughs> right? Phoenix to Santa Clara. And when they kill the vampire, uh, Marco, and then they're running out of the cave, out back out into the sun to kind of get in the car, drive away. The frog boys and Sam are covered in vampire goo. And when they come out into the sunlight, it sparkles. Did you notice how sparkly oh, yeah. the vampire goo was? Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, is this like some weird Twilight precursor? Are we in the same vampire universe We're here? What's going universe. on? Andy, I was right with you. They jump in that convertible and they're, <laughs> they're shining. The whole thing is an homage. All of Twilight is an homage to the Lost Boys. How can it not be? 
Right. And and the other piece is, I mean, you go back to Buffer the Vampire Slayer, like that's not the only thing that the, the, the makeup and foreheads aren't the only thing that Whedon took. It's the whole idea, this whole found family bit, the whole idea of giving horror a Scooby gang it kind of comes out of this. The Frog Brothers and, uh, you know, the Corey's Heyman Feldman and, and the older brother and the the whole group hanging together and, and figuring out what the mystery is, you know, also feeds right into later vampire lore. So, super fun. Yeah, very fun movie. Joel Schumacher, we've already talked about kind of as the director for this. Um, Gosh, you know, I know our members just voted on for our January member bonus episode to talk about Batman Forever, adding that to our, we're going to be talking about the 1996 Golden Raspberry Award nominees for yeah. best for worst director, and uh, members voted for us to talk about that. So we will be getting some more Schumacher on uh, very soon. But other than that, have we, I don't think we've talked about schumacher on any of our shows like looking at his list i don't believe we have i don't believe we've done a single one which is a shame because i grew up on this film flatliners those early schumacher like 80s late 80s early oh, 90s come films. on man st uh, elmo's fire oh yeah i think there's something about him as a director that is making some incredibly captivating entertaining hollywood films that, you know, as you said, as kind of an openly gay director was doing things with characters that I wasn't necessarily even conscious of at the time. But now I find it so interesting that he was finding ways to kind of infuse these big Hollywood films with these things that, uh, you know, you may not have recognized right away. But I, I find that to be so fascinating with what he was up to. I mean, did you notice that stuff when you were first watching these movies? No, uh, the the first time I probably would have noticed anything is is in his Batman movies with like the the nipples on the bat suits and things. Nipples like that. on the bat suit. That was yeah. it. Yeah. It, so you know, the question for me is, as I'm watching this movie, is really what it made me want to do is go back and watch Flatliners again. Like Flatline, the original Flatliners was one of my all time favorites, and I haven't seen it in a long, long time. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Does it hold up? Does it also include so many of the the coded uh, kind of signals? that Lost Boys does on rewatch. That would be interesting. I I don't know because I, uh, that's such like a medical story and a story about soul and life. And, and the only, I'm trying to remember if there's any characters who really are, are dealing with kind of love issues. And it's, it's um, I think it's William Baldwin's character. Who's the one who was sleeping with everybody and he had all the tapes and everything. And, and that kind of was his, thing that he freaked out about when he uh, went back, went to the other side and everything. But I can't remember if there's much else in the realm of love or anything coded in that one. But hey, Kiefer Sutherland's in it. Kiefer Sutherland, yeah. You never, you just never know. <laughs> right. What a cast, though. I, I really enjoy that. I, I mean, Schumacher's a great film, and, and bringing this film to life, this is one of those things that I think is exciting about what Schumacher is doing, is he is such a, a big scope director. Like, he enjoys you know, just big emotions and big uh, scenes and, and, you know, takes things uh, in kind of portraying them kind of in a very bombastic way often. And and this film, it feels like he's tapped into the energy of these teenagers and like is making it for them. And I, I find that uh, exactly what this film needs to kind of give it that sense of 
this is a teenage a story of teenagers and he makes it feel that way from the beginning and you know i i don't know i i feel like a lot of that is probably him obviously some of it's from the script but i didn't know this that you know he really wanted jason patrick to come on board jason patrick told him no a number of times and then finally he won schumacher won uh, jason patrick over by his vision and also allowing the cast especially patrick a lot of creative input in shaping the film apparently patrick was quite instrumental according to Kiefer sutherland in kind of helping him shape this script and you know for young actors i mean how old was jason patrick at the time he was making this i mean he's born in 66 so 21 years old at you know 20 when they're filming it maybe and he's like giving input on the script and everything i mean I just, yeah, what, like, how many filmmakers give their young, young cast members that much say in shaping a script? Right. And yet, that makes, you know, so much of the, uh, uh, so much of the movie that much more resonant. And that's probably why it speaks so much to the, that sort of lost generation. I mean, Corey Haim was 15 when he made this movie. 15! Feldman to 16. Jamie Gertz, 21. Like, they're just, even Sutherland was, 20 yeah right i mean max edward herman 44 years old 44 years old oh right. my gosh i know that's crazy diane weist who is a stunning doyen of playing these the the uh older matron character she's amazing she was 39 when she made this movie andy holy what cow. are we doing holy cow that is uh <laughs> yeah they're great they look great i think they actually are just all vampires i think is really <laughs> maybe they already were that's why they moved to santa clara that would have been the best twist is if they they're like hey screw you we're already vampires you can't have it give me more maggots <laughs> yeah it's it, it it just works and, and you know bringing these young people on that that feel young i mean it's it is kind of the hollywood thing okay you you have 21 year olds playing 17 year olds you have 15 year old playing kind of a 13 year old but you know what in the scope of all of that it all still feels very much that teenage era it doesn't feel like older people writing for or playing younger people that's very true that's one of the things that this movie gets very right and why I think it holds up uh, even as it holds up in on the nostalgia parade for me uh, it holds up the same way Buffy feels to me. Like it holds up because it feels like these, it, it feels authentic in the way the language works, the way they talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shall we talk through some of our performers here? Yeah. Can we start with Grandpa? Bernard Hughes, he's my favorite. He was 72, <laughs> by the way. He's the only one that locks in. Like he's fine. I love the idea that they go to this taxidermist, this old taxidermist's house, and he's already playing dead on his front porch. What a terrible sense of humor this guy's got. I love him. I love him. He's so great. He is uh, fantastic. This is uh, uh, Bernard Hughes, uh, who. Gosh, where do I most know him from? He's one of those faces that is just so, so recognizable. You know, he was in Doc Hollywood. Uh, oh, God. He was, in, yeah, he was in Tron, Doc Hollywood later, and Blossom, the TV show. Yeah. Quite, a, quite yep. a few episodes of that. I really enjoy him, his face as an actor. He's just, I feel like there had to be something earlier that I saw him as, like, I don't know, some TV movie or something, but his face is just one of those, those perfect 
uh, like grandpa faces. Oh. Like he's just great here. Totally. Yeah, I, I think he's really wonderful and and was super fun. He's he, you know he's been working uh, since 1950. Uh, his his he was 34. The first uh, his his first credited job uh, has been working since. I don't I you know I was I, I I think I heard my dad talk about some of the shows that that uh, or films that he was in, but I I don't remember seeing him. I I don't honestly remember him until this movie. Like, this is the first time I feel like his face really stuck for me. And then I started seeing him elsewhere. It's entirely possible I saw him uh, when my parents were watching All in the Family. Uh, he played the priest. And that's possible I saw him there. Uh, stuff like he popped in the Bob Newhart show sometimes. Like, he's just a face that I probably saw in these things without completely knowing who he was. And, you know, on this show, we've talked about the hospital uh, back in our... Yep. Um, Richard Dysart series, and uh, he was in that as well. Uh, and he's so funny. He's so funny in this film. He plays he plays the eccentric grandpa perfectly, and gets the best last line of a like. It's one of those great iconic final lines in a film. I just uh, he's so funny. That is really true. Like that is one. It's one of the smartest, funniest punchlines. It really is a punchline to the whole movie, which is the setup for the great joke. Uh, I, I really believe that I saw him in this movie and only then did I realize I knew him from like Tron because I, I, I couldn't even tell you right now. I can't picture him in Tron right now. I can only picture him here and uh, Doc Hollywood. That's another favorite. So that would be an interesting list to try putting together on Letterboxd, like perfect last lines for films. I wonder if somebody's oh. done that because this absolutely is a perfect last line and it's a hard one to put together because you don't want to uh, if people haven't seen the movies that's such a it, it can be such a giveaway you know uh, to plot or things like that you just if you know you're expecting oh he's going to have this great last line but whatever but it would be a fun list to put together yeah god so that's grandpa okay yeah, we got the we got the old man out of the way uh you already mentioned mom diane weist is mom who you know, this is a great role for, I mean, she immediately said yes to this coming off of winning an Oscar. And she's like, yeah, that sounds fun. I love that about Diane Weist. I've always enjoyed her. And I think films like this when I was younger and I saw her playing kind of this, this struggling mom trying to continue keeping relationships with her kids as they were growing up and figuring themselves out. She also had kind of this toughness with her. Like, I think these are things when I was younger that I attached to Diane Weist, and I've always enjoyed her in whatever she's doing because of films like this. Do you remember the first one? The first film I saw her in? Yeah. Well, I, I feel like it was probably Footloose and then this. I feel like... that uh, was That's me, too. Yeah. It, it's in, Yeah. And then Bright Lights, Big City, and Parenthood. And because I didn't go back and see any of her Woody Allen stuff until when I was older and that stuff would have made more sense to me, you know, I think I probably saw radio days with my folks. Uh, but yeah, it was I didn't see Hannah and her sisters until much later. But yeah, Bright Lights, Big City was another huge one. But, you know, Michael J. Fox fan here. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was watching that one. I wasn't watching that one for Diane Weiss. But again, it was one of those things that I would see her in and go, oh, I love her. She's the Lost Boys <laughs> yes. mom. You know. Totally know her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, she's fantastic. And, uh, you know, super fun. We've, we have talked about her. I, I don't know how many times uh, we, we did the birdcage, uh, which she's just perfect. I, I, that might be it. 
Yeah, I feel like that very likely is it because um, a lot of the stuff she's done later, I just don't think we've really it's, it hasn't crossed our paths. But um, yeah, so very little of her, but she is always fantastic. Although I, I do question her judgment to to kind of continue pursuing this this man. I don't know if if a dog with somebody that I was looking to date like came at me like that, I'd be like, hmm. I don't know how much I don't we can maybe go out, but I'm not going to your place. Yeah, right. Let's maybe not go to in inside the fence. Hounds of hell and whatnot. Um, <laughs> OK, so that since we're going the the older characters first, <laughs> really <laughs> keeping our powder dry for the kids. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about Edward Herman. Oh, yeah. This. OK, now here's the question with this film. Were you suspicious in the story of him being the head vampire as Sam and the Frog Brothers were, or were you thinking that they were just kind of, uh, you know, crazy and they were just kind of harassing this older uh, suitor? Do you, re- do you remember? Like, Yeah, no, I totally do. I totally oh, do. Okay. Because it makes me seem like a real rube, a real novice film viewer. Because I totally didn't. I think the way he plays whenever he sees the boys doing their shenanigans, motorcycles and all that stuff, the way he plays those sequences he is such a like authentic surprise. Like he feels like, "Oh, I'm about to be victimized by some youths." And I <laughs> buy it. I totally buy it. I was totally surprised leading up to the bitter end. I did not have any of those sort of um, doyalist thoughts like economy of characters. Like, of course, he's going to be the bad guy. Who else is it going to be? They can't stop at David. There's no boss fight, right? Like, I just did not. I did not track with it at all. It was a glorious surprise. What about you? Yeah, I, I knowing my teenage self, I know that I would have immediately bought into everything, all the tests that he passed and said, oh, okay, so it's somebody else. Who could it be? He was just a red herring. Yeah. Without I like even, garlic. Yeah, without <laughs> even so overthinking it. it. So, uh, so I would have just totally bought into that and then totally surprised. Now when I watch it and know that he's he is the uh, the head vampire, there are a couple scenes where I'm always like, would would he be acting that way? Like when when no one else is around, like when he's at his house and all of the boys are out there, like, you know, shining their uh, motorcycle headlights at him and kind of taunting him is what it seems like. And we're like, is he going to be the next victim? Now, knowing that, like, that's one of those scenes that does frustrate me because I'm like, but he knows them. Why are they taunting him? Wouldn't he just say something or vamp out and say, stop it or something like th- that's one of those scenes that now I kind of uh, roll my eyes at because it's it's always those scenes that irritate me when it's like no one else is around. So clearly they're doing this just for the audience watching the movie. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I'm not that this is why I had my opening statement was I'm a rube because I totally should have seen that coming. Of course, I should have seen that coming when the dog attacks the mom. Of course, by then you're suspicious. Uh, But I yeah, I didn't I didn't get it. And so I loved it. it. He's such a he's such a doofus, too. Like, I love that he's a doofus kind of a. He's kind of a player, like, but not really. Like, he runs his little store, and he's asking her in, and it's just all awkward. And uh, I just <laughs> love that I got played by that character the first time I saw it. I remember it so fondly. I got played. You know, you know it's really funny. What this time this is the first time um, that I noticed this, but as after he transforms at the end, and he's the vampire 
head and he's you know as he does that fantastic turn that's another thing it's a great reveal yeah. because he says yes. your your boys and my boys and he turns back and he's the vampire face like fantastic yeah. way to do that uh, hats off to Schumacher for planning that but as soon as he turned around i said to my wife wait a minute this suddenly now he looks exactly like Danny Houston like he became Danny Houston, who, of course, then played a vampire in 30 Days of Night. So it was very funny to suddenly go, what? Like, I've never thought of him as a Danny Houston lookalike until he's a vampire. And then I'm like, oh, when Edward Herman is a vampire, he is now Danny Houston lookalike. Go back and look at him as a vampire and you'll go, wow, I see Danny Houston. Yeah, that. that's what they were doing. It's Danny Houston. Okay. <laughs> Note it. Does that take us to the kids? We get to go to the kids now. How do you want to approach the teens, the youths? Well, let's start with the brothers. We got Jason Patrick and Corey Haim. I just got to say, Jason Patrick, coming into this movie, I likely would have uh, recognized him immediately from Solar Babies the year before, which I loved ridiculously. Loved that movie so much. Haven't seen it since. Very nervous to go back and check it out, but I have added it to my watch list because I'm like, you know what? I should just do it. Bite the bullet. Check it out. See if it's any good or not. Feels very risky. I know it does, but I, I can't help myself. Jason Patrick and Jamie Gertz were both in that. And I it was just a nonsense film, but I feel like maybe I'll still like it. Who knows? But anyway, I like him as our kind of uh, angsty teen here trying to figure out life in a new town mack it on the the hot girl he sees like i i think that patrick plays that well and i so bought the relationship the brother relationship that he and haim developed in these characters like they just always felt like really close brothers who had gone through a tough divorce with their parents and they just feel super connected i loved that about these two I will say, as an only child, this was the movie that defined what I imagined having a brother would have felt like, right? Like, this is, I, I totally agree with you. I have no idea what is real or not, but that, th their relationship was, was perfect to me. It was like, oh, if only I had Jason Patrick to, you know, hang around with. Guide, guide you along the, the path. Yeah. And he's great. I mean, Jason Patrick is one of those actors who I've always enjoyed. I feel like, I mean, he's still acting. I just feel like he's he's kind of gone down a path of stuff that I'm just not watching as much these days. But I have always enjoyed seeing him and stuff. He's, uh, I think, a solid performer. Did it start with Rush in 1991? <laughs> That's all I'm asking. <laughs> oh, you're terrible. No, I think Sleepers. I think, well, I liked Sleepers and then probably it was Speed 2 Cruise Control that kind of pushed him down. Oh, no, I take that back. Narc was fantastic. He was great in that. Okay. And have you seen anything since Narc? Sister's Keeper? I haven't seen that. Oh, The Losers. I saw The Losers. He was great in The Losers. He was the bad guy. He was a great, great bad guy. Yes, I did see that. We talked about that in our uh, over on Marvel Movie Minute in our member bonus episode for uh, before we started our season of Captain America, because that was what Chris Evans was doing right beforehand. Yeah, I don't remember. That must have been somebody else. So I, I think he was. Yeah, that was it. That's that's what we've got of Jason Patrick. And and I think I was so sullied on Rush that uh, we're going to go ahead and spike any other movies that come up with him. <laughs> I, I haven't mentioned Rush in a long time. I feel like we need a little cowbell to celebrate that I've, I haven't mentioned. I feel like we we're too hard on Rush. Like, I feel like it had oh, some Andy, good elements stop. going for it. And especially you, the fact that he had it. taken iron to <laughs> his arm to burn the 
the needle marks so that uh, he could pass the the test that the cops are giving. Or whatever. That was that was something I'll never forget. Who, Horrifying. Who are you right now? <laughs> Let's go back okay. and do rush minute by minute, <laughs> Pete. <laughs> Okay, so we're looking for new hosts. Let's now talk about. Uh, let's go down from there. Shall we talk about the the nemesis, Corey Haim? Do we do, Corey, do we talk oh, about do, Corey, Corey Haim? Haim? Brothers, we haven't talked about Corey Haim. Fifteen years old. Uh, sad uh, story of Corey Haim. But this is the era when he was in his sort of peak power uh, with the youths. Well, Sil- Silver Bullet was a couple years before, which I certainly enjoyed. And then he was the kid in Murphy's Romance. Lucas, though, which was a year before this, I think was kind of the big thing for him. Carrie Green was in that and Charlie Sheen. And that, I think that was one of those movies that everybody seemed to really enjoy. And then, of course, from Lost Boys, kind of pairing the Corys together, then License to Drive, they became kind of dream. this thing. Dream a Little Dream, right? Yeah, and then he kind of, uh, sadly, kind of fell down a a, a dark hole of uh, drug addiction, and it just is very sad because I always enjoyed him. I felt, you know, it, when you're watching kids that are close to your age on screen, you just feel so connected to them, and he was one I absolutely always enjoyed watching. License to Drive, I watched that thing so many times. So many times. Couldn't tell you what it's about. Other than what it's on the tin. I just watched it a lot. I have no memory of it. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and speaking of all the, the, the coded things with him or with the, within the film that Schumacher kind of had, I mean, he was a very fashion forward kid. I mean, like you said, like some of the outfits he was wearing were like crazy <laughs> ahead of their time and likely coding him as like a young gay kid trying to figure himself out. He had an earring. He had a poster of sexy Rob Lowe hanging on his wall. I mean, he had some other sexy women on his wall too, but that was like something on his wall that this time I noticed. I'm like, oh, I wonder why that's on his wall. And then my wife and I were talking about it and we're like, oh, all of it makes sense. You know, all these little coded things. Uh, but again, those are things that like it's there but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean anything if you're not going to take it out of it and i never would have tapped into any of that when i was at the age i just enjoyed him as a kid that i could connect to he loved comic books and everything and i i just think that he brought so much humanity to kind of the protagonist of the story or kind of our two protagonists that we have here is the two brothers that poster of rob lowe on the wall is the uh lost boys equivalent of the hanging of santa claus in the princess bride on his bedroom wall Right. I just had never seen it. That was the thing right. that yeah. I'd never seen. It's noticed. one of those things. And right. It's like I'd never connected with it until now. And I realized, oh, I get, oh, yeah, I get the movie. I get the whole thing. I get it. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now we can talk about uh, the Nemeses and then we'll end with the Frog Brothers. So, uh, David, Kiefer Sutherland, the head of the gang. Can he do wrong? I don't know that he can. Even in, even in movies that I don't think are good movies he's he's the best <laughs> i love <laughs> Kiefer sutherland i mean he's been president he's been yeah. cowboy he's been uh, uh really troubled uh great uh, bad guys international uh agent of espionage and torture like i mean i just remember like remember the first time you saw 24 like the whole conceit of 24 was incredible and to have him at the at the head of it i mean he was just great just 
really, really great. I think he does a lot of, of really great. He's an incredibly magnetic uh, performer. Uh, to watch him interviewed, he's incredibly soft-spoken. You know, he's like he's, he's a, a great actor because he's not at all in his parts. Uh, I think that's what's, what makes him really compelling to me is seeing him when he's out of character is, is really fantastic. In this movie, I think he's a diabolical bad guy. And, uh, and, and to hear him, to see him as like the vampiric predator is great the way he teases and plays and how do you like your maggots michael you know i mean all of those little bits are delivered uh really perfectly so i'm i'm a big fan and and coming off of stand by me where he's so uh just terrible of a person in that film there is this level of kind of that playful antagonism that he has in scenes like that because even when star is like stop it david and he stops it but then he turns his noodles into worms like he still kind of can't help himself like there's something so teenage about the way that he taunts like it just still feels so much that mentality and yeah i mean he captured it perfectly and and he also, you know, coming from an acting family, I think uh, Kiefer just has an innate sense as to how to perform for the camera. And moments like his reveal when he pops up into out of the darkness into the light, revealing that face, like he understands, you know, how to move within the frame to kind of get the kind of capture the best moment. And I, I just, you know, I've generally always enjoyed Kiefer Sutherland. He's one of the good Nepo babies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, geez, he and his dad, between the two of them, they just oh, don't stop working. It's crazy. I know. Really crazy. But, you know, they're, they're such, like, multiple threats. They both have incredible voices. They're great voice actors and have a really superlative screen presence. Like, that's a, that's a, a great gift. Like, they know how to use the tools. You know what I mean? You know what I mean, Wink? Yep, yep. Jamie Gertz's star... She is the uh, the girl that Jason Patrick's Michael sees across the crowd with, uh, we didn't even mention that sweaty sex man is playing in that scene, but that's the moment Michael sees Star and uh, stars fly. Jamie Gertz, um, were you in love with Jamie Gertz in this era? Come on, Andy. I feel like everybody was. Yeah. Yeah, everybody was. Stop it. Of course. Of course. I mean, she's the... Um, She's the young woman in a movie full of gay guys. And so what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, except Michael. Michael is, is the only one who uh, except Michael. is hetero. Yeah. He's, he's struggling <laughs> through the transformation. <laughs> uh, yeah, she is, uh, I think, rightfully frustrated with, <laughs> with her, her place in the gang. And uh, as such, she's never made her kill, her first kill. She's never really done the deed. And so, it, you know, I think that that makes her a really interesting character. It, but also she's she was just I she's super adorable in this movie. And I remember I, I remember because I mean, she was what she was 20 when she did this. And I just remember I just remember having a total crush on Jamie Gertz in this movie. Of course, of course. Well, it was the era, like Quicksilver, Crossroads, Solar Babies, this, Less Than Zero, like those films alone, like she was just popping up in everything and it just, it was so easy for me to fall in love with. And then she did Twister a decade later and it's like, yeah, yeah, no, nope, that was, shouldn't have done that one. <laughs> Come on. 
Come on. <laughs> she is so bad at that film. I, 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 I don't know if I should fault Jamie Gertz or if I should fault the, the writing for that character, but it was, it was just terrible. Yeah, it was, bu- it was puzzling. Okay, but it was Dr. Melissa Reeves, Andy. Dr. Melissa <laughs> Reeves. She delivered. Oh, angst. man. She- yeah, she got married to a billionaire in '89 and uh, barely acts anymore because uh, she doesn't really have to. She acts once in a while, but uh, you know, she's one of those people who I, I think um, you know found found a different calling in life. Let's just say all these sports teams they own and everything. My yeah, goodness, yeah exactly. sports teams. She's that kind of a billionaire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay, so we've got David's crew and i feel like the key one to talk about um well i mean you know we've got brooke mccarter billy worth and alex winter alex winter uh is marco he's the one who gets killed first but uh he's possibly the most recognized of those three because of course bill and ted's and is just uh i think somebody who is always fun to see on screen i i do enjoy alex winter I want to talk to you about Alex Winter. Did Alex Winter, what's the deal with his reputation as an actor? Because I listen to interviews with Alex Winter and I'm constantly compelled by that guy. Like, he's just fascinating. And I wonder if Bill and Ted didn't hurt his reputation somehow. Because after Bill and Ted, he did a bunch of stuff that I haven't seen and then went on to uh, direct. There was a, uh, wasn't he part of that documentary or, or it was a documentary, something about child actors and, uh, just kind of the struggles that they have as they try to figure out their place. Like they make a big hit when they're really young and then they're constantly trying to figure out what do I do? How do I, do I top that? Like, what do I do? He was certainly a voice in that whole voice. I can't remember if it was a documentary or a podcast or something that I saw some of and, and he was very well-spoken about the struggles and the challenges that go with that and trying to figure out all of those different elements within yourself when you already kind of had this fame when you were super young. It's difficult. I think it's very difficult. And I think his journey, I think, is one of those that that shows how hard it is. Like, perhaps some of those projects that he took when he was young, maybe he shouldn't have because, but he was young. It's like, it's hard to figure out how to make good choices in a career, you know, without realizing you're setting up a career. You're just like, well, that sounds fun. Let's do that without realizing. And I think that's kind of part of the challenge. And I do find him to be well-spoken on that now and has really been able to kind of look back on, on his own kind of career and everything. And I, I think that's something I, um, do enjoy about him quite a bit is is that um, perspective. I remember feeling like I experienced an Alex Winter comeback uh, with Grand Piano. Did you ever see Grand Piano? I have it on my list because I heard I actually you talked about it and I heard it was uh, you said how much you enjoyed it. And so I put that on my list. I was very interested in it and never managed. I, then I subsequently forgot. I apologize. <laughs> Oh, I heard how important the movie was to you, Pete, and then I forgot about it. <laughs> I even went so have far seen, as to write it down. Have you seen my, my watch list? I'm going to go add it back to my watch list right now. Well, I'm just saying, it's a it, Damien Chazelle wrote it, directed by Eugenio Mira, and it, it's a wonderful little movie. It's not a perfect film, but it's a wonderful little movie, and Elijah Wood is in it, John Cusack, Tamsin Edgerton, and it's really great. And Alex Winter plays this part in this movie that I felt like, oh, oh, I know that guy. Like, 
that's a guy who is more than Bill and Ted. Uh, and I think this movie, uh, you know, talking about uh, the Lost Boys, uh, again, this movie is just uh, Marco over the top. Like, you can't really see the actor underneath this because he's full of, you know, the color and punk and ripped stuff. And he screams a lot. So uh, <laughs> I just found I really uh, ended up connecting with Alex Winter and the stuff that he was doing and the way he thinks about stuff. I don't know if he's a problematic guy, but I like the way he he thinks about uh, film. And, and I like some of the work that he's doing. So definitely, definitely. Brooke McCarter and Billy Worth are the other two. Brooke McCarter didn't do much and then sadly uh, passed away in 2015 from a genetic liver disorder, which is sad. And Billy Worth played Dwayne and uh, was certainly done a lot more projects, but a lot of stuff that, again, I probably just haven't seen. Um, smaller stuff, I haven't seen anything else that he's done, even even the TV. You know, I watched Law & Order, but not all of it. And so <laughs> he was on one episode. I didn't catch that one. But I think they capture, like, the four of them, David, Paul, Dwayne, and Marco, there is this sense of kind of like that 80s rocker vibe that they have, like totally. kind of the long hair. Uh, David's kind of got the bleached spikes. Like there's something about all of them that just feels like they stepped off of MTV. And I think that's, again, kind of what Joel Schumacher wanted to capture with these teenagers is they feel like MTV rockers. They feel like something that we would see at school, kids walking down the hall, dressing like their favorite um uh, rock stars that they're seeing performing on MTV. Like this feels like those kids. And that's, I think what made it so believable to see all of these together. And the fact that we see them on the boardwalk and really we know more than anything, they all aspire to be that sax player. They all want to <laughs> be on that stage shirtless with a saxophone. I mean, come on the whole sweaty sax player thing. Like that started with it. Uh, was it on, was it Family Guy? It wasn't Family Guy. It was one of those shows where they showed a clip of that or something. And then it started it, this whole thing of like the sweaty sax guy just kind of turned into this whole thing that is very, very funny. And then John Hamm was parodying it on SNL and just, yeah, the whole thing. And it's, it's great because Tim Capello is that sweaty sax guy and totally owns it and loves it and he performs this like he performs these songs at events and, and like comic cons and all those sorts of things all the time like very much enjoys kind of just that aspect of all of it i think it's perfect yeah well and and you know he's on he's on so many tracks that i was listening to at this time right from peter gabriel tina turner so much oh he was the sax on on uh we don't need another hero from thunderdome one of the living Thunderdome, like he's he's just everywhere. Yeah. yeah, what's love got to do with it? Totally, he's just uh, he he's he's great and really owns that part. It's so funny and sweaty. I mean, don't forget sweaty. He toured with Carly Simon in uh, 1980, around the time he started bodybuilding. Once appearing on stage in a leather g-string, as well as chains and a dog leash, by which Simon pulled him onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is okay. that is so funny, so so okay. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, you mentioned, uh, well, we'll talk about the music here in a minute because we got to talk about that. But we need to talk about the Frog Brothers, uh, Corey Feldman and Jameson Newlander as Edgar and Alan Frog, the two kids in town who know about the vampires. And even though they've never actually done anything about it, I love their confidence, the the, the overconfidence they have, yet have never done anything. And by the time they're doing stuff, they're like, oh, crap, like that was that was a lot crazier than I thought it was actually going to be. You know? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, that is the, that's the thing that I think is so wonderful is they take that, the comic shop vibe and try to, to transplant that onto the real life of the movie. And I think it just doesn't play out uh, as well as maybe they expected it to. And that works great for the movie. Uh, and they also have my favorite kill, in the movie, which is the garlic holy water bathtub. And I think it's just, it's because we've, you know, we did our show on on uh, RoboCop and had to see some acid destruction uh, in that movie. And so I'm, I'm especially attuned to melting figures uh, right now. And, and I think this one is, is okay. It's not RoboCop level melting figure. Let me just say that right out of the bat. It is second to RoboCop, but it's still pretty good. The well, the reason that it is so over the top here is because they knock him, well, with the help of the dog, into the bathtub and all the garlic and holy water. And he kind of like is melting and falling apart and eventually turns into kind of a skeleton and everything. It just like it works so well. But it's also the fact that it turns the pipes into like anti-vampire pipes that just can't handle anything and suddenly all the pipes in the house are like gushing i guess vampire goo all over the place like what the heck just happened to the plumbing in this house it it was nonsense but it makes for a very fun kill like the fact that it goes down and floods the kitchen in vampire goo is just (laughs) crazy yes that's really funny and and we get the beats where everybody's like oh my god they're trying to go upstairs and they see through the window something's going on in the kitchen and they look at it and we know that it's being flooded by vampire goo and they're just like oh well let's go upstairs (laughs) (laughs) it's such a funny bit yeah so good uh okay that these guys jameson newlander i want to talk about him but i can't because we have to talk about him during the sequels and remakes because oh my god there's a i did not even know about lost boys the thirst which he is also in and the tribe uh, he was in deleted scenes from that one but oh was, okay uh, didn't yeah. didn't know that yeah. didn't know that either okay so i have a lot to catch up on uh he hasn't been in a whole lot of other stuff uh jameson newlander he was uh, in the blob but, the very next year which is yep. a fantastic remake uh re- more recently he was in bone tomahawk um but yeah not a ton of things but i i do enjoy him in the film uh, i think that yeah, he me too. works well in this role um but yeah it's 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 cory feldman that i usually gravitate to and i think that's just because i had already been seeing him in a number of films by the time i got to this one and you know he's just one of those fun kids to watch i like cory feldman too i feel like i saw cory feldman mostly in stuff that he did with cory haim uh, you know as i look through his his stuff we've talked about him a few times on the show with projects that he did earlier on in his career like right around this time like we talked about gremlins we talked about the uh we talked about stand by me i think that may be it um you know and i feel like he was one of those actors who 
uh, kind of went along the child actor route and struggled and everything, just kind of like Alex Winter, trying to figure out what sort of career is. I mean, he's always kept very, very busy, but I think that it, he had that struggle of figuring out what do I do? How do I grow up in this industry? What sort of projects am I going to be working on? And all of that. And I think that's kind of the the road that he went on. And so he's certainly had a, a time and has struggled quite a bit to the point where, you know, he said, Hey, I'm going to put it all out there in TV land for everybody to, to watch along with in whatever that reality show was that was following him around. What was that show? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't watch that. I didn't either, but I just remembered it was, uh, well, he did the two Corey's that one was following him and Corey Haim around for a bit right yeah he also was in the surreal life like he was doing all of these sorts of things for a while i understand the world of being a child actor and then figuring out how do i grow into a career is a challenging one for many many people yeah for sure for sure these guys they had some issues but interesting careers it it is interesting you bring that up because i i didn't um like i i didn't feel like i was really tracking cory feldman and and yet like I already had Gremlins and Goonies and Stand By Me before The Lost Boys. And Fox and the Hound, if you recognize the voice. I probably wouldn't have recognized his voice at the time, but um, I had certainly already seen it. Yeah. Right, right. Interesting. We mentioned the music a bit, talking about Sweaty Sax Man. Uh, The soundtrack to this, I think, is kind of as iconic you know, of the era as the film itself was. I mean, uh, you know, with In Excess and Jimmy Barnes doing good times on there, you had... Oh, Echo and the Bunnymen. Which is a very 80s group to bring on to do a cover of The Doors, you know? And then just so many of the songs that you like, Lost in the Shadows, the Roger Daltrey version of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, you got Cry Little Sister, which is a fantastic one. Of course, I still believe, like all of the songs, like the soundtrack was just, something that i had playing all the time like i loved these songs and the soundtrack and it just it fit the vibe of the movie and the tone that uh schumacher was capturing here of the of the mid 80s me too were there multiple soundtracks is this one that hadn't inspired by do you know i don't believe it did i think it was just the one soundtrack that came out well it's really good yeah so i I mean still still really good Yeah. yeah That's right. It is still really, really good. And and it was it's fun to revisit in this movie and find myself, oh, I listened to this. I mean, my car was just like burned it up, right? The CD. Uh, it was it's really great. So that's the soundtrack. How where do you go from here, Andy? What it, do we need to talk about anybody else? I feel like we've kind of covered it. I mean, I just, you know, Thomas Newman does the score, which, you know, I, I think works for the context of balance between horror and comedy and kind of teenage stuff like that the music that he has that at least is on the soundtrack is very merry-go-round-ish and i think that kind of plays it kind of fits kind of just the whole vibe of the lost boys and just kind of the idea of these kids who are living forever i just it just feels like this kind of haunted party music and i just i know i really like it and i mean just i i, I feel like shooting this in in santa cruz on the um, kind of the boardwalk that they have there it was such a like an iconic location to use um, you know on uh, my wife and I visited this a number of times when we were living up uh, when I was living up near that area and she'd come visit me we'd go down and it's it's such a fun place and it's just it kind of is I don't know for me it kind of became as iconic as the film just the idea of 
this boardwalk right on the ocean that we see the vampires hanging out at uh, is this beach town that they're moving to. Like it just, it, it fits the tone that they're going for really nicely. Yes. And, and I think that the, uh, you know, the, the town itself, right. Of, of Santa Cruz and it's called Santa Carla, which is a weird anagram of a really bad anagram of Santa Clara, which is the real town in California. Santa Carla isn't, but it is based on Santa Cruz, which I don't know what it should have been. Santa Cruz, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it is, <laughs> it, it is, uh, it's in a beautiful part of the, the town. But what I, you know, what I don't know is like they make a bunch of uh, allusions to it being, not even allusions, right? The murder capital of the world. I don't think Santa Cruz was doing well at the time. I think that was part of the, of the joke is that they made this movie about this town that wasn't doing well and it wasn't doing well. Like it, it, I, I think it was pretty crime written that it, it wasn't that far from uh, being the murder capital of the world. It's my understanding. Interesting. I wonder if that was kind of an inside joke in California of bringing Santa Cruz to life through this fictional town, but that one that is kind of the murder capital of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I found it. Um, the location wasn't smooth sailing at all. Town's authorities were wary of the boardwalk being portrayed in a bad light, especially after 1983's violent film, uh, sudden impact filmed partially in Santa Cruz took them by surprise. Even worse, Santa Carla's title as the murder capital of the world wasn't fictional as Santa Cruz earned that moniker after years of serial killings. But the authorities read the Lost Boy script, loved it, and ended up giving Schumacher the green light. So, like, that's part of the part of the the sort of community gestalt of Santa Cruz is that this is a thing they had earned and it's part of the fabric of of the location so it's interesting but it's really fun to see that amusement park and and the you know the roller coaster the giant dipper it's it's really cool uh, yeah i'm looking right now the da for santa cruz county actually called it that in 1973 in an interview after discovering four bodies in the henry cowell redwood state park um he actually said he referred to it as the murder capital of the world and so it clearly was something that stuck and it makes me wonder if that if the front of the sign that said santa uh, carla was made up for the movie but the back of it that was spray painted on murder capital of the world was actually really there (laughs) totally me too right oh crazy crazy well what do you want to do next i i think that's it so uh we'll be right back but first our credits The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Ghost Modern, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, uh, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for our show. Sequels and remakes, Andy. Sequels and remakes. I did not even know. I didn't even know there were two more after this. Really? Other movies. You didn't know about them? I didn't know about them. Didn't know they were there. Haven't seen them. I don't know what to do about it. Well, before that, though, I mean, it just, I think it's, we've already talked about a lot of the influence that this film had with bringing vampires into kind of a more youthful, sexier 
appeal that worked for all sorts of different properties. But yeah, but then it did have two sequels. At the time they came out, they felt like they were just trying to come up with something to kind of keep the story going. Uh, direct to DVD sequels. The first one, Lost Boys, The Tribe. In 2008, Corey Feldman returned as Edward er, as Edgar Frog, and Newlander returned apparently as Alan Frog, but the scenes were deleted. Corey Haim makes a cameo in it. And Kiefer Sutherland's half-brother, Angus Sutherland, plays the lead vampire in that one. Uh, in 2010, there was a third film, Lost Boys the Thirst. This reunites the two uh, Frog Brothers on screen. And they actually planned on doing another one as a TV show, but the whole thing fell apart. The only other news in the realm of sequels, and I think it would actually be a remake, is that in 2021, they announced a new film. Jonathan Entwistle was going to direct it, and Noah Jupe was going to star in it, along with uh, Jaden Martell. And I don't know. I don't know if they're still working on developing that or not, or if the whole thing has kind of fallen by the wayside as kind of a, hey, we're in COVID. What could we come up with? Hey, let's remake this movie. And that's the last that we heard of it. I don't know where it stands, but um, but that's where that's where things sit right now. What is this Lost Girls thing? At the end of this film, Kiefer Sutherland's character, David, doesn't explode or anything. His body is just there. The idea that they had was they were going to follow this up with a sequel called The Lost Girls. David would return, and the whole story with him would be picked up in this film that would follow a number of girls, uh, in addition to uh, Sutherland, as a bunch of these vampire groups. Schumacher tried getting this made, but was never able to, and then the whole thing kind of disappeared. But um, yeah, I don't know if that's something that... If they do make a remake, they'd also try to do something that incorporates some of those ideas. But um, it was there. They had a script and everything. I don't know. It feels like we're in the era of legacy sequels and reboots. So <laughs> don't, uh, you know, don't be surprised when it comes back around. How did it do at the uh, award season? This was not a big one uh, in the scope of kind of this series. None of them have been really big, but some have been... Eh, have received a few more than others. This is kind of in the realm of the average, we'll just say. Three wins, five other nominations. At the Saturn Awards, it won Best Horror Film. Uh, Bernard Hughes was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Richard Dawson in The Running Man, which I I, 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 I get I, it. I totally get that one. Uh, Corey Hames was nominated for Best Performer by a Young Actor, but lost to Kirk Cameron in Like Father, Like Son. Ah, mm. uh, yes. Uh, I was nominated for Best Costumes, but lost to The Princess Bride, and nominated for Best Makeup, but lost to RoboCop. And at the Young Artist Awards, Corey Feldman was nominated for Best Young Actor in a Horror Motion Picture and won. It won Teenage Favorite Horror Drama Motion Picture, and Corey Haim was nominated for Best Young Male Superstar in Motion Pictures, but lost to River Phoenix in the Mosquito Coast. That seemed like an, a bit of an egregious awards title. Best Young Male superstar in emotion i mean really talk about acting it's categories like, that gave young people yeah uh, complexes just a little title inflation yeah i don't <laughs> i don't love that i mean i don't love it all right how to do it at the box office this is where the money meets the road Well, Schumacher had a pretty small budget for his vampire film, $8.5 million, or $22.7 in today's dollars. 
The movie opened July 31st, 1987, opposite The Living Daylights and Made to Order. This landed in the number two spot behind Bond's new outing and dropped out of the top 20 after seven weeks. The film still went on to earn $32.2 million domestically, and I couldn't find anything about its international release. Uh, so I'm just going to go off the domestic release, which means it grossed about $86 million in today's dollars. And that lands the film with an at least an adjusted profit per finished minute of $653,000. So I'm interested in that number because that doesn't line up with the amount of love I have for the movie. Like, that's <laughs> not nearly... I love it more than $86 million in today's dollars. Wow. I, I In my head, this movie was the, the best young male superstar. The whole movie was. <laughs> and it it, went, in my yeah. head, it, it, it was in theaters forever, right? It was just always there. I'm trying to think. Of the films that we're talking about in this series... I let's see, Inner Space. I didn't see in the movie theater. Uh, Predator. I would not have been allowed to see in the movie theater. Same thing with RoboCop. The Princess Bride. I definitely saw in the movie theater, and this I did not see in the movie theater. So it was period where I wasn't seeing a lot of things in the movie theater. My parents were just weren't taking me to the movies, but it was all rentals, like everything, like every day, like after school, we'd be biking to the video store to rent movies, and so that really was where I was watching stuff. So I missed all of these in the theater, except for Princess Bride. Man, we had very different movie parents. Yeah. Yes, we did. Well, uh, this has been awesome. Very fun. Very <laughs> what, fun. What a movie. What a new awakening. Fun addition to this series. <laughs> new awakening. Are you going to Are you gonna uh, get a Lost Boys poster to hang in your office now? No, but a Rob Lowe poster for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get Rob Lowe dressed as Santa Claus? Sexy Santa Claus, Rob Lowe. <laughs> so now we have to talk about Letterboxd. Andy, you know what we're going to... It seems like we're on a run of just explaining where the stars live permanently in our list uh, and where other lesser movies are trying to borrow them from uh, with this this run of movies that we're talking about. Uh, do, is there any... I mean, do you have anything to say about to justify or rationalize your opinion about this movie or is it can we just say five stars and a and a heart no, well no because it's not a five star film for me. <laughs> i know i i really really enjoy this film but i i don't this is not one that i uh, would call a five star and a heart for me um i uh, it's funny though because i actually had rewatched this in 2021, uh, it must have been kind of a COVID watch. I was trying to remember if I watched it with my kids. I only rated it three stars and a heart. And I was like, gosh, that was a little harsh to only give it three stars and a heart. But I also don't feel like it's four stars. So I'm going to say three and a half. Um, but it's, a, you oh, know, I have so many so... films that I love that are sitting at the three and a half range. So I feel that that's okay. Uh, that's egregious. And I am giving it five <laughs> stars and a heart because why not? It's the movie of my youth. And uh, I I think it's flamboyant and fun. And it inspired so many other things that I love. Like it's this is the you know what it is? This is the letterbox lifetime achievement five star rating. That's what the movie's getting. It's like it might not be a great movie, but I'm giving it the stars for what it represents. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Uh, well, you can find me over on Letterboxd at Soda Creek Film. You can find Pete at Pete Wright, and you can find the show at The Next Reel. So what did you think about The Lost Boys? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we're going to be talking about it this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know what to do. I'm still smarting a little bit at three and a half stars. Like, how do you possibly <laughs> go to Letterboxd in good conscience and pick somebody else's review uh, when when you're so slacking on your own? I, anyway, I mean, we can let it go. I know you're busy over there looking for something that might that might redeem. <laughs> uh, I, I will, I'll, I'm going to go first uh, because it's from Caitlin and it's five star. And Caitlin says, imagine it's the 80s and your key for Sutherland. And you're so repressed that you turn your crush into a vampire instead of just talking to him. Unbelievable mood. <laughs> All right, what do you got? There are a lot. So in many. The, there are a lot in here that that clearly are people who are uh, in love with these characters. Uh, not just like, man, I love that character, but like, I love that character. Um, and this is one of them. Five stars by, uh, and a heart by Salem. Hello. Hi. Um, can the brunette vampire that never speaks, please sincerely hit my line. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love notes. That would be an interesting list. Like movies on Letterboxd where the reviews are mostly people just asking characters to hit the slide into their DMs. <laughs> right. How many movies would that be? That's That would be an interesting list for sure. I challenge someone to put that together. And that someone is not me. But thanks, Letterboxd. This was fun. All right, post-show chit-chat. We've got some questions in the chat. And uh, so we're going to go through them. Here, first one. Is this the best Schumacher movie or one you think of as strongly having his signature? Yes. No. Is it the best Schumacher movie? Uh, no. I answered too fast. Uh, or maybe I didn't. I I feel like uh, I I've lost I kind of stopped watching his stuff after Phone Booth and I missed a lot of stuff um, through his career so I've only seen let me just go through his list uh, I've seen a tiny piece of The Incredible Shrinking Woman that probably won't count DC Cab Saint Elmo's Fire Lost Boys Cousins Flatliner uh, Falling Down The Client Batman Forever Batman Forever Time to Kill Batman and Robin Eight Millimeter and phone booth that's all i've seen what about you yeah i mean i've seen uh lost boys the batman's uh falling down phantom of the opera phone booth time to kill eight millimeter saint elmo's fire flatliners the client and bad company which was not his best movie oof <laughs> and and that's it so i missed like tigerland and veronica garen and flawless and uh, number 23 oh, i didn't see and number 23 i didn't see the number 23 either but i i actually heard fair things about that it was moody yeah so of his films i i don't think i would say this is his best i would pick falling down as his best i just feel like he had a lot to say and it, it i feel like that film gets more and more interesting uh with every passing day but i definitely feel like this has kind of that signature of his you know and I, but I what about like, dc dc cab does that have a signature? I, I watched that so much when i was a kid i, should I not actually have. saw that it's i can't believe i didn't underrated. mention that i've seen that movie too yeah yeah definitely uh something that i watched on hbo after my parents were sleeping uh jason patrick would <laughs> who infamously would later run off with julia roberts right before kiefer and her were going to get married that was a funny story to read and uh, it can be found on the internet uh, were you surprised that Santa Clara is the murder capital of the world? Well, we talked about that. We did How talk well about that. How well does the movie that. use its location, such as the boardwalk? Thumbs up. I think very well. Love them. 
love them. I also, we didn't talk about the cave, but I really enjoyed that too. And just kind of tying it to like this, this old hotel that kind of fell in the 1906 earthquake and they were kind of living in the remains. Like that just felt so vampiric to be kind of living in this, this place. I, I enjoyed that location quite a bit. Uh, we talked about Sam's poster on Ro- of Rob Lowe on his wall. Schumacher nodding to a past star of St. Elmo's or homoerotic subtext. And how about the Jim I, Morrison Why can't we have both? That's <laughs> exactly it. Exactly. Uh, Jim Morrison, that's an interesting one because I think there is this element of Jason Patrick having a little bit of a Jim Morrison look to him. Yeah. And I think if you look at it that way and like that, the Jim Morrison poster was perhaps uh, David's poster that he put up in the cave seeing Jason Patrick as kind of like his little crush on Jim Morrison, I think could be a little uh, connection there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Does Laddie watch Michael have sex with that vampire lady? (laughs) I was wondering, (laughs) we're like, wait a minute, isn't that kid here? What is he doing this whole time? (laughs) But he's already almost vampire. And that means, I mean, really hasn't he already seen the worst of it? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) <laughs> what's worse really oh this is a good one uh, thoughts on why that is in the movie why do they have like why is laddie in the movie or why do they have sex um i just felt like they needed to have some sex it just seemed like teenage movie that we yeah. got to get him in bed together um, so here's because, the question yeah. though why laddie why is laddie in the movie talk about like such a token but uh, i think it needs to give us this sense of again the vampires of different ages and the idea that she is now this very protective character like i, I just felt it like yeah. in the scope of a family having a kid there kind of added to that for me yeah okay um why uh, for you are the titular lost boys supposed to be the vampire michael and sam or another group and what has been lost i mean based on kind of what the writers latched onto with peter pan and the lost boys and the idea of living forever i think it's absolutely the vampires um but i do think that's interesting because i think that's a draw for michael for sure to this group of you know these people who are rebels who have this kind of dangerous sense to them like you know the the james dean racing up to the cliff edge things like that like there's a lot of that sort of stuff hanging off the bottom of the bridge like all of this stuff just seems like when you're young like that and you feel invincible like i feel like that's the draw that michael has to the group so like he is peter in not he's not peter he's what are wendy's brother's names he's one of them who's drawn to the idea of living with the lost boys that peter pan um lives with man if you could if you could just riff on the names of wendy's brothers right now i would <laughs> are i want I to know say they're david do. and michael would... which would be really weird because we have a david and michael in this film wow what are wendy's john and michael john and michael is that what it, is that it yeah john and yeah john's middle child michael's the youngest okay wow john darling and michael darling nice yeah you're absolutely right i had forgotten darling uh have you guys gone looking for the diet frozen yogurt bar <laughs> we'll leave that there presented That's... without comment <laughs> i just gotta say ah uh, the 80s right yep for sure if you had to take on these vampires what would be your weapons prep and booby traps <laughs> i love that they interrupt a, a baptism to just fill yes. with with no pause, no words or anything, just to fill their like their three canteens full of holy water. 
that is one of the and then and then when uh, uh i can't remember which frog brother it's not edgar it's the other one when he's walking away he just does like the fist up like yeah yeah to the priest yeah. like, <laughs> i i think holy water in this movie is well implemented because we get it in bathtub we get it in uh water pistol uh we just get a lot of use of holy water and i i think holy water would be my weapon of choice i would i would be the splash about frog brother the thing that uh, that makes me nervous about that is in the realm of vampire movies they love saying nope crosses don't do anything he 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 nope garlic doesn't do anything he nope holy water doesn't do anything he he and so that's the thing it's like i would totally yeah, you gotta agree know which you. movie you're in yeah which movie are you in but i'd totally pick holy water if i was in this movie because like we even see it in this movie why why on earth is he using a bow and arrow right like <laughs> you missed like of course you're going to miss cuz how often do you 15 year old spend shooting real bows <laughs> and arrows dumbass like it just feels like the word go for the holy water it's the biggest area of effect we need an area of impact weapon not a uh a range weapon that's my that's my pick that's a terrible uh, okay. terrible idea Terrible all idea. Right. Uh, that's well, that's it. it. Hey, thanks that's for it. hanging out, everybody. Uh, thanks super for all fun. you wonderful members and uh, for all of you non-members. Thank you for listening in, and uh, we hope you enjoyed. And please, again, consider becoming a member.